Amen. We get to sing such hopeful songs. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Every one of us in this room that is in Christ, that has been redeemed by Jesus, everybody that's been forgiven of their sins, is counted righteous in here. We have a declaration of being right before God because of the work of Jesus. We have righteousness imputed to us. So we have a declaration that says that we are fully forgiven and we are fully counted righteous. But we are not yet actually righteous. But here's what that song says. The song says there's going to be a day when we're actually righteous. That what's declared true about us will be actually true about us. That the ransomed church of God by the blood of Jesus will be saved to sin, so, sin no more. So the power of the cross of Christ is so marvelous, wonderful, huge that it is so powerful that it will break the bondage of sin over everybody in this room. That one day, all the ransomed church of God, what's declared true about us will be actually true about us and we will be holy and pure and without sin. That is hopeful. That is wonderful. That is powerful. That's a powerful cross. That's a powerful salvation. So that's why our song will be the rest of our lives about the blood of Jesus. We just The, the redeeming love has been my theme and it shall be till I die. You don't get over redeeming love. You keep singing about it. You keep talking about it. That's what we do. Just such hopeful songs that we get to sing. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be continuing to walk through Ephesians, but before we do that, we're going to pray for some churches like we have been doing um, over the last three months. We're just going to continue to do that. We get a chance each week to come together and just pray, and we're going to do that again this morning. This uh, last week, there has been an announcement that was made about a church in our area, uh, specifically about the pastor of the church in the area, and, and Satan believed to be getting the upper hand, but in the end, God is getting the upper hand because Satan would love for sins to stay, stay hidden for the long haul sins and leaderships of churches. But what we see this last weekend at a local church, the Journey in Marion, and uh, the Journey, it's a church in... Uh, that's one of the churches we're going to be praying for this morning. Uh, the sins of the pastor was exposed. And that is God's victory over his life and for the life of the church. That is not Satan winning. That is God winning by declaring, I will not let you sin against me any longer. And that is God caring for that church by exposing sins that needed to be exposed. We have dear friends, brothers and sisters that are, I do personally, that are a part of that church. And in fact, the pastor there is an acquaintance of mine. And my hope is that sin being exposed will be restorative for him and for their family and for that church. So we're going to pray for the journey in Marion. And they're actually their church in St. Louis and a bunch of different areas. We're going to pray for them this morning. And then we're going to pray for the other churches that we, we were at the men's retreat uh, with at this weekend. It was uh, um, Lakeland Baptist Church. It was Christopher First Baptist Church. Um, uh, Christian Covenant Fellowship in Carterville. Uh, Fellowship in Christ Church in Carterville. And our church. Our church was the fifth. So I'm just going to pray for then for five churches and for, for God just to do restoring work and again be praying for the journey and Marion and, and just think when you, if, you, if you hear about it or if you've heard about it, uh, it, it sounds at first like a bad thing and in the end it's not because God is protecting his church and he's exposing the sins of a son of his. And God is saying no longer. God told Absalom in Genesis, I, it was me who would not let, let you sin against me. And God has been gracious and kind to do that uh, for a man in, uh, in the St. Louis and Southern Illinois area. So let's, uh, let's just pray and ask for God to, to work even this morning as these churches are gathering together. 
Jesus, thank you that uh, this church is not the only church. that you are. We have brothers and sisters, blood-bought brothers and sisters, uh, all over the globe that are gathering together on the Lord's Day to celebrate the exact same thing. And we stand with brothers and sisters down for 2,000 years who have been centering around the person and work of Jesus, and we're doing that again this morning. And so I, I lift up the journey, and for all their expressions of their congregations from St. Louis to Southern Illinois to wherever, and I thank you for my acquaintance slash friend, uh, brother, who just, just fell and sinned. And uh, God, you exposed that sin, and I thank you for your kindness uh, in that. And I pray for every single one of us, God, in this room, that you would not let us hide in secret, but you would bring to the light that which is being hidden right now. And that this would be a body that is a, we're able to confess sins to one another and love each other, and, and we're able to see transformation take place. I pray for that church. Thank you for the journey, and I pray, God, you would continue to work there, and you would bring health and healing and restoration to a church that needs it. Pray for them as they're gathering this morning that your name would be honored. That they would be Jesus-centered this morning. Thank you for Lakeland Baptist Church and for the brothers and sisters that are gathering there this morning. I pray against the enemy, his works and effects. I pray for any gossip, slander, any malicious intent from any of the members there. God, I pray that you would squash that this morning and unity and joy and peace and just your honor would be on display. I ask that you would move there powerfully. I pray for anybody there that has been being prayed for that may be visiting, that you would bring them to yourself this morning. Lift up Christopher First Baptist Church. I thank you for their generosity to us as a church and their love for you. Thank you for Pastor Matt. Uh, that just is always just talking about you. And I just thank you, God, for your grace that's been on display at Christopher First Baptist. Continue to grow that church. I thank you for the people there. Continue to bind them together for your purposes. Lord Jesus, I lift up Christian Covenant as they're gathering over there. God, I pray that you bring uh, continued health there. God, I pray that uh, you would be at work, the Holy Spirit, you would change people there, that you would have uh, your purposes done there this morning. And I lift up Chris. Uh, a fellowship in Christ Church, that it would be a fellowship around Jesus this morning, that you would unite hearts, and God, that you would change lives this morning. I ask that you do that. And for us here this morning as well, uh, Holy Spirit, just have your way. Just point us to Jesus. It's a joy. It's a delight to be here. It really is. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. And it's just such a, it's a grace, it's just a, it's a grace-filled room of, of just people in here who've been saved by you and you, that you brought together uh, just in this church. We just thank you for our church. We thank you for what you're doing here. And God, we just uh, ask you to help. They don't need to hear from me this morning. I don't need to hear from me this morning. We need, we need to hear from your word. Speak, Father. Your servant sons, your servant daughters are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what is the center of the church? The title of the sermon this morning is We're Gospel-Centered Because We're God-Centered. We're gospel-centered because we're God-centered. What are we doing here on Sunday mornings? What are we doing when we gather together in small groups throughout the week? What are we doing when we're spending time in fellowship throughout the week on a Friday night as we go out to eat or as a Saturday or at a men's retreat or when we gather around a campfire and just hang out? What are we doing? What's the point? What's the point of gathering here week in and week out, going through the same old motions, doing the exact same things, you know, the church really is the, the epitome of a broken record. I mean, we're just, we do the exact same things over and over again. It's like a broken record spinning, and we do the, the exact same things every single week. So why do we do what we do? What's the point? What is the center of who we are and what we're about as Christ Church Carbondale or as the global church? What, what, why, why are we who we are, and why do we do what we do? What's the point? 
Well, we're going we're to talk about this this morning. What is the center of the church? Why is it so easy for churches, and why would it be so easy for us, as we briefly talked about last week, to be church-centered? You know it's easy to be a, a church-centered church? Last week I mentioned it. I want to mention it again because it's so easy to get there. Uh, the church begins to be its own center. So Christ church begins to be the center of Christ church rather than Christ being the center of Christ church. Well, we're all about us. We want people to be introduced to Christ church and we want people to come to Christ church and the emphasis becomes the name Christ church rather than Christ himself. People are not being converted to Christ church. We want people converted to Christ. Okay? If people leave our church and want to go somewhere else, God leaves them somewhere else, praise God. That's wonderful. Go be where God's calling you to be. And I pray that, that would be the case with other churches as well. So we, we don't want to be a church-centered church. We want to be a Christ-centered church. We don't want to be a specific social issue-centered church. It's easy to get into very good things, and, and those very good things slowly become the center of who you are and what you're about. We don't want to be an issues-centered church. It is easy to become that because there's a lot of good things in the world, is there not? There's a lot of good things and there's a lot of good causes that the people of God should be about. But it's very easy to get issue to become an issues-centered church. In fact, the more noble the thing is, the more seductive a false gospel it would be, it will be. The more noble the endeavor is, the more seductive for a church it will be to, to make that thing its center. And so if we're not, we're not careful, we'll become a anything but a Christ-centered church. So we need the grace of God to remind us what our center is. Okay, Holy Spirit, this morning, remind us, what is the center? Why, why do we exist? What are we about? It's also easy not just to become a church-centered church or an issue-centered church. It's easy to be a let's-make-everybody-happy-centered church. Derek Webb, in his song, I Repent, he says, I repent for trading, trading the truth for false unity. I repent for trading the truth for false unity. It's easy to be a let's-all-get-along-centered church. Let's create false unity by just saying, hey, it's no big deal. We can all put our hands around each other and, and arms around each other, and we're just, we're just we're all okay. The truth doesn't matter. Sin doesn't need to be confronted because that would get in the way of our center, and our center is to be an everybody's happy-centered church. Okay, that's not the point either. This morning we're going to see very clearly that the Bible calls us to be a gospel-centered church. And that is a buzzword around uh, Christian media and Christian books and you name it. But it's not just a buzzword. It is biblical. We want to be a Christ-centered people. Okay, and We're going to see that here in real quick three easy parts this morning. The first part is going to be in verses 1 through 7, part 1, one through 6. Part 2 is going to be in verses 7 through 9. And part 3, we're going to be in verses 10 through 13. So verses 1 through 13, first, uh, verses 1 through 6, we're going to get some repeat information from last week. Verse 7 through 9, we're going to get the bullseye center, the gospel of the, church, of the local church. And then we're going to see, okay, why are we gospel-centered? We're, we're, going to, we're going to see here the reason that we're gospel-centered. The title of my sermon is, we're gospel-centered because we're God-centered. Well, how can you be centered on two different things? Well, we're going to see here in a second. So, look at verses 1 through 6 with me. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of, your, of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you, re when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery 
is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There, there are some things that we need to hear over and over and over again. And the first century Gentiles and the first century Jewish believers needed to hear again, even though they had just heard about it in chapter 2, they needed to hear again that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And this is, this is a, a common thing throughout the scriptures because the gospel is, is presented over and over again. And in fact, Jesus tells us when you come together, remember me. You know, when we break bread and we drink the wine, we come together and we remember the body and the blood of Jesus. We do this because we're, for, we're for forgetful. So there are some things that the scriptures just over and over again bring us to. And Paul's doing this with the Jewish and Gentile New, New Testament believers, this first century believers. He's reminding them again that, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that this gospel of Jesus is going to be a global thing. This is important for the first century Jews because many people missed in the Jewish faith, many people missed the Messiah Jesus because they were anticipating a Messiah that was, that was different than what they thought the Messiah would be. They thought the Messiah would come and he would usher in the law of Moses in such a way that it would overthrow the Roman Empire. And we still have imperialists like this today. We still have people who believe that the kingdom of God should be manifested right now on display in the United States of America. Okay? And there will be a day when the kingdom of God is physically ushered in, when Christ Jesus returns and destroys his enemies, renews this earth, and establishes his kingdom forever on this earth. But for now, uh, there, is, there are still people that miss the, miss the point, and they think that if only the law, the Ten Commandments, would be established in every single community, at every single courtroom, and in every single school, that this world would be, that this, this nation would be transformed. They, they still believe to this day that that's the point. And the Jewish people thought that this would be the case. They thought that the Messiah would come in, would overthrow the Roman Empire, and that the, the law of Moses would be established throughout the whole globe. And when that didn't happen, it was confusing for them. So Paul wants to remind them of the mystery that has now been revealed, that it wasn't revealed of old. They didn't know how this was going to take place of old. But now, as the Holy Spirit has been ushered in, the Holy Spirit has brought clarity to the apostles about what this work of Jesus was. And in fact, it would be a global kingdom. It would unite Jews and Gentiles as a kingdom of priests on this earth in a way different than if the law of Moses just would have went from nation to nation to nation. This kingdom that Jesus came to establish would be one of from heart to heart to heart to heart to heart. All across the globe, I already prayed, we have brothers and sisters that are a part of the kingdom of God. They're truly a part of the kingdom of God. We have uh, people in prison who have been converted, and they may be inside a prison cell, but they are the freest people in the world, and they are part of the kingdom of God. They are already ruling and reigning on this earth because of what Christ has done in them. And so this kingdom was different, and so Paul wanted to remind them about the work of Jesus. But then he goes on, he continues to go on after this reminder, and he begins to tell them specifically what he was called to as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this is where we are going to get the center of why we are what we are, why we do what we do, uh, what is the center of the church. This is where Paul is going to bring us. Look at verses 7 through 9. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone the plan, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Friends, here we get the center. First, I want us to notice the grace of the calling to be a minister, a preacher of the gospel. 
You know, isn't it ironic that the Jew of all Jews was called to be a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles? Paul. The Jew of all Jews, the Pharisee of all Pharisees. God called him out of his context and into the life of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. One, that's, that's pretty interesting to me. Um, Jesus also called Judas to be the one who kept the money of all the apostles. Judas. Matthew, the tax collector, probably was pretty good with money. And yet Jesus called Judas to do it, not Matthew. It's interesting that often God calls us out of our strengths and into areas what we think would be our weaknesses to display His power. And too quickly, we look to what our natural giftings are and think, well, God must be calling me to do this specific thing. He has given me strengths to do this, but maybe, supernaturally, God is giving you spiritual gifts that, are, that don't go along with your natural gifts. God calls not Matthew to take care of the tax or take care of the money, calls Judas. Okay? Jesus calls, God calls the Jew of all Jews to preach to the Gentiles. Today, with our ministry strategies, we would talk Paul out of this. Paul, there's other people that are more uh, ready to preach the gospel to Gentiles than you. They're more able to do it, more qualified. Uh, man, you need to go and minister to the Jews. You know them, they fit your context, they fit, fit your gifting. That's where you need to be. That's not how God did it. And I'm really thankful for that. God calls us into areas that we think we are weak to display His power. Just like God to do. When we are weak, He is strong. I think there's a verse about that. Okay? Paul calls us to his calling. He says this, To me, though I am the least of all the saints, you see that humility, this grace was given. What grace was given, Paul? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I want to real quickly talk about the calling to be a preacher of the gospel. Um, other than being a Christian, and other than being a father, excuse me, a husband first, and then a father, there's no greater calling. Uh, there's only 600,000 clergy in this country, and that's a really broad statement about, uh, about clergy. And, uh, and I'm going to preach to myself here a little bit, and anybody who would feel called into the ministry. Um, there is a unique joy that comes with getting to preach the gospel. When God calls somebody to preach, He's calling somebody uh, into a very specific thing. And it's something that very few people in this world, less than 1% in the world, get to be called into. Um, it's a privilege. And those called into ministry need to know what the center of that ministry is about. And so this, as we get into this, is a reminder for me. What is, what is, why, why does my heart as a Christian beat? What is this calling that I've been called into? And it's going to be helpful for you because you'll, you'll be able to see if I ever get away from this central calling, this calling of being a minister of the gospel of Jesus, you need to hold me accountable to that. I have my wife who will hold me accountable to that. I can't get anything past my wife ever. It's unbelievable. And then I have these two men, and, and these two men, I'm so thankful for Andy and Russ. These are two of the most, more than anybody in here except my wife because she's a gospel-centered woman. Of the men in this room, I can say this about these men. These men are gospel-centered men. They love Jesus. They really love Jesus. And you know what? They're broken, and they screw up in so many different ways, Okay, just like me. But by God's grace, they lean into Jesus. And I'm so thankful for you guys, really thankful for you guys. I'm the same way. I can't tell you the countless ways I screw up. I need God's grace all the time. And even as I stand up here to preach, as I come up to preach, Spurgeon said it like this. I'm going to quote Spurgeon now three times. He said that the minister has regular days when he walks up the steps thinking that he is the most unworthy man in the world to preach the gospel. 
He walks up the steps and has to preach the gospel to himself as he's preaching up, standing up to preach because he knows how much he needs Jesus this last week because of his behaviors, his thoughts, his intentions. Um, it, it is just it is a high and holy calling, and it is a gift. I want to read this about that. Paul thought this was a gift. And as I said two weeks ago, Paul would have never, never have said ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people because he loved people. He just loved them, and he loved preaching the gospel. Here's a couple things about calling. This is uh, Charles Spurgeon again, then we'll get to uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's what Charles Spurgeon in, in his book, uh, um, Lectures to My Students. He didn't go to seminary. Uh, he forsake or Seek not great things for yourself was a verse that, that he believed God specifically gave him to, to not have him go into seminary. He wasn't, but then later, he started a, a pastor's college, which is unique. Uh, he had a mind that was wonderful and a calling that was more wonderful. Here's what he said. The first sign of the heavenly calling to preach the gospel is an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. In order to a true call to the ministry, there must be an irresistible, overwhelming, craving, and raging thirst for telling others what God has done to your own souls. Uh, I remember when God was changing my life. I'd become a Christian when I was a young boy, but I remember summers of 03, 04, and 05. And I will never be the same. God so changed me, so showed me the glory of Jesus that I've not been able to get over it. It is a thing where God just so dropped in me a passion for His glory. Uh, so, and as I still war against that, so a love for the gospel of Jesus. This is what God does to specific people. It's a, Paul called it a grace. It's this unique thing that God has called us to do. It says this, don't enter the ministry if you can help it, was the, was the deeply sage advice of a divine who once sought his judgment. If any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor, or a grocer, or a farmer, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a senator, or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. Do it. Paul was a man, by the grace of God, who couldn't do anything else. He had, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel, is what Paul said. He was so captured and caught by this image of a God who loved sinners and set His aim not on good people, but on sinful people, and sent His love down to just captivate the hearts of sinning men and women, Paul just couldn't get over it. And he called it a grace. It was a grace to preach the gospel. And I stand in front of you as a man weak and in need of Jesus and just say to you that this is a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to do this week in and week out. It's, it, not everybody gets to do this, and not everybody will get the delight of being able to stand before God's Word, and by the way, the subtle terror of it, because wanting to be faithful to this Word. It's God's words that we're talking about. Uh, but it is an honor to be able to do this, and I'm thankful for it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. Let me put it like this. I'm speaking from personal experience. You are certain of the call when you're unable to keep it back and resist it. This is a medical doctor at 26. He was the, one of the most world, one of, was a world-renowned physician at 26 years old already, and in fact was the royal physicians in London, royal physician's assistant at 26 years old. So if the royal physician died, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was up next to be the physician to royalty at 26. And he left that call, that prestigious call in, or that prestige, prestige, prestigious position to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus. He was not seminary trained, but he was called to the ministry. And he said, you tried to, your utmost to resist this, you say. No, I shall go on doing what I'm doing. I am unable to do it. It's, it, it, it. I am able to do it. It's good work. 
you do your utmost to push it back and to rid yourself of this disturbance in your spirit which come in these various ways. But you reach the point in which you cannot do so any longer. It becomes almost an obsession. And you're so overwhelmed, it's so overwhelming that in the end you say, I can do nothing else. I can resist it no longer. Here's what I want for people in our church. I want God to raise up the next pastor of this church by God's grace. And he doesn't have to do it this way. But I would love if he raised up more and more pastors in this church. More and more preachers of the word. I would love if he raised up missionaries in this church, that he dropped in you this great desire and passion. You have to go and tell of the gospel of Jesus around the, around the world. I would love it. That he would just so put a burden in you that you can't do anything else. I, it would be incredible. God can call my son to do whatever. But boy, in 25 years, I would love to be secure enough, secure enough 50-something-year-old man to step back and submit to my son as my, the next pastor of this church. would love that. Or to one of your sons in this room. Would love that. Men, let's be secure enough the older we get to recognize the call of God in other young men and women and fan that flame, the gift that's in them, the gift that's in them that's so glorious. It's a grace that God would call men and women into the specific areas that God calls men and women into ministry. It would be a gift for Him to do that here. And I pray for our young sons and daughters that God would use them in any way He sees fit for His glory. It's just a gift. It's a wonderful gift to be called into the ministry. Like I said, it happened to me in 2003 through 2005. And what began to happen when I was called into ministry is that uh, it was just a great concern for the glory of God. I wanted God to be honored. I didn't even know what that meant. My theology didn't even honor God at that time. I didn't even understand the gospel completely at that time. Um, And still yet, I'm growing in this Christian walk. There's so much. I'm 32. There's so much to learn. Uh, as a Christian, as a Christian man, as a pastor. And I'm going to be growing in the rest of my life just stumbling forward. God's going to continue to clarify the gift of this calling. But here's one thing for certain that I know. The center of the ministry that I get to be a part of is never going to change. Because Paul here says that he was called into something specific. And what was it that he was called to? He was called into preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles and to make known to everyone the mystery of that are, that's hidden, and bring light to everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul's call into the ministry meant that he was going to be a man for the rest of his life who would preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is what God dropped in him. Even the phrase itself is hard to translate because unsearchable can be translated in almost every different translation. It's translated in a different way. But this idea is that in Christ, you will never run out of things to preach. You're not going to exhaust the content. You're not going to look at every angle of the person and work of Christ. You're never going to get to the point where you put your hands in your pocket and you sit down and you cross your leg and say, hey, I'm done. I've preached all that I can about Christ. You're going to find more and more in Him the longer you walk with Him. And this is the center of every preaching ministry, of every church. It should be the center of it. The bullseye should be the unsearchable riches of Christ. We talk about other things, but through the lenses of the gospel of Jesus, every single sermon, every single week, every single small group, every time we're together, we go back to Jesus time and time and time again. He is the content of our faith. He is the center of our faith. He is the center of our hearts. It's Him that we love. It's Him that we encourage each other with. We don't get past Him. Ever. You know what the center of this congregation will be if we exist in 30 years? Jesus. You know what we have preached about? Week in and week out, every single week. You know what we have sung about every single week? The unsearchable riches of Christ. 
every week. If you've got a window into 25 years from now in our congregation, we may be the same size. We may, by God's grace, grow. I hope that that's the case. You know what? I can tell you what's going to happen on a Sunday morning. We're going to come together, and we're going to sing about Jesus. Somebody's going to get up there and preach. Hopefully in 30 years, it's not me, because there's tons of preachers around ready to preach and ready to go, and we've got to give them opportunities to do it. And they're pointing us to Jesus. And then we're going to receive communion. We're going to celebrate remembering the work of Jesus. And you know what we're going to do in 30 years after that? We're going to respond and we're going to sing praises to Him. And the Holy Spirit's going to work. And we're going to pray to Jesus. And we're going to love Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus. And we're going to break up into small groups. And we're going to gather around the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we're going to just keep doing the th- same things until all the rants of church of God is saved to sin no more. <laughs> like, it's real simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just fall in love with Jesus. Keith Green said one time, you know what it means to be a Christian? You're bananas about Jesus. You just, you love Him. You just, you just want to sing about Him, talk about Him. You love Him. The unsearchable riches of Christ is what Paul says. One, he's called to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and tell everyone the mystery that was hidden. The church's center is the gospel of Jesus. Spurgeon says this, last time I'll quote him, the motto of all servants of God must be, we preach Christ. And him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Never. Shut your mouth and never preach again. Because, sir, if you don't preach Christ, you have nothing worth preaching. And that's the case. We come to this simple gospel, Christ crucified for sinners. Every week, the unsearchable riches of Christ must be preached. You never exhaust Christ. Turn with me. Somebody turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and you're going to read that verse for us. And then somebody else turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Actually, I'm going to read that. Somebody turn to Colossians 2, 2 and 3. Who wants to join in reading the scriptures this morning as we, uh, you can help me with my sermon. Colossians, raise your hand if you want to read it for us. Read it out loud. Colossians 2, 2 and 3. Who's got it? I got it? Russ, you got it. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay. In Christ. It says, to reach all the full assurance of understanding, your mind, understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Are you kidding? So you can be fully assured of something that's mysterious? Oh yes, apparently. This mystery, which is Christ. Why is it mysterious? Because in Christ, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Him. I've used this illustration before. I hope it's helpful. My dad loves uh, metal detectors. Okay? He loves metal detectors. And when he, he actually found like a, a replica coin like a Spanish coin or something like that. Fortunately, my dad doesn't love Speedos because that would be a horrible thing. But typically, when you go to the beach, uh, typically when you go to the beach, there's a gentleman that's, a, that's older than he ought to be uh, wearing a Speedo. and he's wearing, Not that there's any age that's appropriate to wear a Speedo for a man. But uh, wearing a Speedo, because that's, that's the, the stereotype here of, of men with, with, with uh, uh, metal detectors. And they're going on the beach, and anytime they find something, they start to dig, and there's great joy when they find something in the sand. When I think treasure, uh, apparently the first image I have is an older man in a Speedo walking down the beach. But um, this is the idea of the mystery of Christ, okay? The idea is 
you got this metal detector, and there's treasures to be found, and it's this endless shoreline, infinitely long in front of you and infinitely long behind you, and there's all these treasures buried, and you think you found all the treasures that you found, but then all of a sudden that, that beep starts to get stronger, beep, 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 and the Holy Spirit, as you're looking to Jesus again in this infinite shoreline, you start to dig, and you know what? You discover another wonderful mystery and treasure in Christ. And then you get a little bit older and you find, by God's grace, another treasure. And you start to dig more and more and you say, Jared, I think I've found everything I've, I've, I'm ever going to find of Christ. No, you're not. I promised. You're not going to exhaust Christ. You look again and the Holy Spirit stirs your heart again and you're digging. You start digging and all of a sudden there's another nugget of the glories of all the treasures and wisdom knowledge, of all treasures of wisdom and knowledge found in Him. That means there's never going to be a point that we run out of things to discover of Jesus. It's pretty profound. How about this? Why are we gospel-centered as a church? Look at 1 Timothy 3.16. And I'm actually going to read that one. Look at this. I love this. See, the the truths of what we sing about, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. It's so true. Okay, The blood of Christ, that, that flowing stream, shall never lose its power. I love words like that because it's true to the Scriptures. Because here's what the, the Scriptures say. In verse 18, or 16, look at this. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Godliness. What's the mystery of godliness, Paul? Okay, We all want godliness in this room. If we're a believer, and if you don't want to grow in Christ, there, let me just say this, that there is something, and, and there's grace for that. Okay, There's even grace for not wanting to grow for the believer. But we should want more and more godliness. The Holy Spirit's doing it, that in us. We want to be more and more godly. Well, the Apostle calls us here to something and says that there's a mystery to godliness. This is how it works in spiritual growth sometimes. It feels like growing is really, really slow. It feels like spiritual growth. It's like, you ever had that dream where you're in the mud and you just can't run? Or maybe that's just me. Or you just figure out that you just, you know, I have dreams all the time where I'm trying to run and I figure out I can't run. It's kind of what spiritual growth feels like sometimes. You just, it's just like, oh, I just, it's so slow. What in the world? Why am I still dealing with this? I kind of did, I had a confession 101 last week at the beginning of the sermon with the pin oak tree. And you just scratch your head and you wonder, why, why is spiritual growth so slow sometimes? Why do at times do I even feel like I'm, I'm like regressing? Like what, what is going on? There's times that I feel like, man, three years ago, you know, Jesus and me, we had it going on. And, and now like, okay, but we want this, this godliness, we want that to grow. Well, here's what Paul says. Great indeed, we confess. We confess. Here's the mystery of godliness. Here it is. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in all the world, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. Why we're gospel-centered? Because we want to grow in the Christian faith. We want to walk in godliness. And here's what the bullseye center brings us. It brings the mystery of godliness and it brings, as we look to Jesus again, as we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, point each other to Jesus. Hey, Hank, what's Jesus doing in your life? How do you know the finished work of Christ today? What's, have you been thinking about that? As we point Hank to that, you know what happens? This mystery, godliness, begins to be unfolded. And we start to slowly just overcome sin and the victory that Christ purchased begins to be a reality in our lives. A, a gospel-centered church is a church that's walking in godliness more and more, stumbling forward the rest of our lives together. The mystery of godliness, this gospel center that we have. 
It's powerful. We are gospel-centered. Paul knew that godliness comes through the preaching of the unsearchable riches of Christ. We will always be Christ-centered. Always. If I need to grow in the faith, I need to know more of Jesus. If I want to know godliness, I need Him. And so do you. So we're always going to be Christ-centered by God's grace. Because I don't even have it. We don't even have it in our power to be Christ-centered unless God helps us do that. So easy to just get derailed. God save us from that. We need it. So I said at the beginning, here's the title. We're gospel-centered because we're God-centered. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. Something absolutely astonishing happened. Astonishing happens when a church, the people of God, okay, if the unsearchable riches of Christ are preached to the congregation, the mystery that was hidden for ages and that's now been revealed is preached to local churches, it has an effect in the heavenly realms. And that's what Paul's going to say. That this is a plan from God in the beginning that the church would be gospel-centered because it has, when the church is gospel-centered and the unsearchable riches of Christ are preached, it has its effect around the throne of God. Something happens when the angels look down, when the heavenly host looks down and they see the work of redemption, something begins to happen in the heavenly realms. And we are gospel-centered because we're God-centered. Let me explain what I mean. Look with me in verse 10. So that, that means all of this before was for a reason. The unsearchable riches of Christ are preached. The mystery hidden from the ages is preached. So that, the church is gospel-centered. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Pause. Look at me. Now, How interesting is it that when the gospel of Jesus is preached here, the heavenly hosts, the reason that God calls us to be gospel-centered is that so the heavenly hosts would have something made known to them. You mean they don't know it all? They're the ones around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, O God, to take the scroll and by your blood you ransom people for God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But somehow, those heavenly beings, those heavenly creatures, look at a gospel-centered church, and they stand in awe, and something in them begins to happen, and they start to learn, and they start to have some content that turns, to them, that turns them again to Jesus, and they begin to say, even maybe with louder voices, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So what it says through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Something of the wisdom of God is on display in the church that the heavenly hosts look at and they learn from. Now let me just tell you this. Angels have never experienced the redeeming work of God. Angels fell, and they were not redeemed. They're called Satan and demons. And... With humans, this privilege, those created in the image of God, we sinned and God came. There is no hope for redemption for the evil hosts in the heavenlies. None. So angels see in the church the manifold wisdom of God as they were wondering, because angels in the heavenly realms are not omniscient. They don't know everything. They look at a gospel-centered church, a bunch of people busted up, a bunch of sinners redeemed by Jesus and given new hearts, and they look and see, that's 
what God was doing. God, you're worthy. You do have a plan. This wasn't an accident. The fall, that hideous day when Adam and Eve fell and everything went into ruin, you did have a plan. And as these group of people, as they gather week in and week out all across this globe, and as they're worshiping, as the gospel of the unsearchable riches of Christ is preached, the heavenly hosts look to the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and they say, you are wise, you're infinitely good, holy are you, I see what you were doing. What we're doing here is affecting literally the heavenly places. We are gospel-centered because we're God-centered. He deserves all praise and glory and honor. And you know what the angels don't stand in awe and look at when we're not gospel-centered? When we're issue-centered or church-centered? Paul says when a church preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ, the mystery that's now unveiled, the reason is that so that the heavenly hosts would stand in awe. So we're gospel-centered because we're God-centered. We want God to be worshipped. Friends, I want that for you. I want that in your thoughts of God, and I want that for me. I want you and me to stop wanting glory for ourselves. You know what's hard for me? You know what I want to be known for? I want to be known for the preacher who doesn't, as the preacher who doesn't want to be known. I wish people would pay attention. God, why don't you grow our church like you grow other churches? Because here, we're about your glory. Here, we're about your gospel. Here, I want that to die in me. I want to be known as the guy who gives all glory to God. Glorify me because I glorify God. I want that to die. And I want that to die in you. I want want us to be God-centered. And so what makes us God-centered, it's a cyclical effect, is the gospel of Jesus. It destroys our pride. It says, Jared, for everything that you are a mess, I still see you because of the grace of Jesus. I see Christ in you. I see Christ for you. This gospel that's outside of ourself that that has been brought into ourself. This work of Christ on our behalf. We're gospel-centered because we're God-centered. And the more we're gospel-centered, the more we become God-centered. And if we're self-centered, we need the gospel to make us God-centered. So we're gospel-centered because we're God-centered. We see this again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. I just want to read this real quick. Here's what we hear, or here's what we see, and we're almost done. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Here's what it says. It was revealed to them, the angels that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you about the gospel of Jesus, through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, what are these things? Things in which angels long to look. Here's what that means. That these angels who have never experienced redemption... They long to look into the redemptive work of Jesus. They stand in awe. We didn't get this. Our former worshipers of God who became worshipers of self and became the enemies of God and the enemies of His people who hate God. They hate the gospel. They don't get redeemed. But what is this 
sinful humanity who gets redeemed. These angels long to look into these things. Now let me just tell you this. If the angels long to look into the work of Jesus, and they are in the very presence of God, is there not more for us to discover? Can we not look again? Can we gather around this simple gospel for the rest of our lives together, individually and corporately, and just say, we're all about, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel of Jesus. We just love Him. And you know what? We want to invite other people into that love. We don't, like I said a few weeks ago, we don't even invite any people to our church. We're not inviting people to any social issues. We're not inviting people to any of that kind of stuff. We're inviting people in to the worship of King Jesus. Can we be, by the grace of God, gospel center? Can we look again? The, the angels long to look at what we have experienced. So let's look again. Here's how it wraps up. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. Or excuse me, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that He realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the point. This whole thing was the plan from the beginning. God had a plan to bring glory to His name through the heavenly hosts looking down at a gospel-centered church. This was God's plan all along. God never lost control on that hideous day with Adam and Eve. It did not catch him by surprise. The theme of heaven is a lamb who was slain, who is worthy. The theme of heaven is about a slain lamb. The only way you get a slain, slain lamb is if there's a fallen world. God had his purposes and he had his plan. And his whole plan about this redeeming work, it's never been out of his control. And it's God's plan for us to be Christ-centered this morning. It's God's plan for us to point the heavenly host and to, uh, to begin to point them and be their worship leaders as we point, to them, point them to the work of Christ. And Andy, you guys can go ahead, and Andy and the team, you guys can go ahead and come up. This is God's plan from the beginning. So, how are we supposed to respond to this? Verse 12, in whom, in whom, Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you, because of all this, He tells them, because he's in prison. So I ask you, with all this good news, with all this glorious stuff I just wrote about, I ask you, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Don't lose heart. In response to all this, here's what I ask. We have boldness in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Since we have access to him, let us go to him this morning. Let's worship him. Let's be, by God's grace, gospel-centered. Let's walk the shorelines as we're singing these songs and let's pick up our shovel and let's dig by the power of the Holy Spirit into the sand and look for these infinite treasures that are waiting for us to find, waiting, waiting, waiting to be found. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you for the opportunity to just do this and help us to always be gospel-centered because we want you to be honored. It's the gospel that dislodges us from pride, from self-centeredness, and it points our hearts and our minds to you. Help us as we sing as we even get prepared here in just a little bit to receive communion. Help us just, our hearts, to be set aflame on fire for the glory of Your name. Drowned. Drowned in us the desire for glory. Glory for our name. And help us to be centered around these unsearchable riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. The Holy Spirit is leading us, so follow His lead. If you want to pray, Want to come forward, need to confess, whatever, let the Holy Spirit lead. 
We'll sing and then we'll come back and receive communion.